the women that I worked with, coal mining was the only good paying job, which also was relatively safe because of the existence of the United Mine Workers Union. And many of the women I worked with were single parents. Many had to leave abusive relationships or for whatever reason were raising their children by themselves and needed to have a job that they could come home to their family safely with, but also with a decent paycheck. In this week's Labor History Today, we hear from Kip Dawson, a woman coal miner active in the women miners movement of the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. She talks about women's empowerment and recent labor history. Kim comes to us from the Willamette Wake Up Labor Report, which airs on KMUZ in Salem, Oregon. Then, if they can send one billionaire up in space, why can't they send them all? If we think of a reason that we need you back here, we'll be sure to give you a call. Take your time. A special treat from the D.C. Labor Chorus Holiday Concert last month. And... On this week's Labor History in Two. On this date in 1905, 23 industrial unionists held a secret meeting in Chicago. I'm Chris Garlock, and that's all ahead on this week's Labor History Today. We are cooks and engineers, letter carriers, truck drivers, conductors and cashiers. We operate machinery, we fly the big airplanes. We help to build our unions. We got struggle in our veins. We were there in the factories. We were there in the mills. We were there in the mines and came home to fix the meals. We were there on the picket lines. We raise our voices loud. It makes me proud just knowing we were there. Welcome to Your Rights at Work. I'm Chris Garlock. We've got a very special treat for you today, the D.C. Labor Chorus's Evening of Favorite and Sacred Songs. Live streamed from the Blue House Production soundstage last Sunday night, this annual concert is one of the highlights of the local labor calendar. The D.C. Labor Chorus is directed by my union sister, Elise Bryant, and made up of labor and community activists, who love to sing for peace, for joy, and a belief in the power of song to touch hearts and minds. Here they are. Enjoy the show. Yeah. 
a favorite and sacred song. Now, some people get a little confused by that title because they expect a bunch of religious songs, but the fact is, we believe in the definition of religion being that which binds us together. And for us, it's social justice. For us, it's working for climate change. It's the right to vote. And so we're celebrating that this evening and dedicating our show to all the workers out there, the cultural workers and the conscientious folks who are making this place a better place for everybody. All righty. Yes, there are some strange things going on in the news these days. Like uh, people who are like flying up into space just to go flying up into space when that money can be used to feed the hungry, give housing to the homeless. But we have a friend here, member of the course, who's been writing parodies, and this is his latest, Billionaires in Space. Dave Saint. We have to admit it was startling when you streaked through the skies or our town. You may think we're finally looking up at you, but the fact is we're still looking down. If they can send one billionaire up in space, why can't they send them all? If we think of a reason that we need you back here, we'll be sure to give you a call. Take your time, take your friends, I hope you're having a ball. If they can send one billionaire up in space, well, why can't they send them all? Well, it used to be the plutocracy never needed their own personal star. Just give them supermodels and super yachts and crackers full of caviar. But now it seems that a rich man's dreams involve surfing through the stratosphere. Well, if that's the case, I say enjoy outer space. We'll be happy to stay home and cheer. If they can send one billionaire up in space, well, why can't they send them all? If we think of a reason that we need you back here, we'll be sure to give you a call. Take your time, take your friends. I hope you're having a ball. If they can send one billionaire up in space, why can't they send them all? Please be so kind as to leave behind the password to your banking accounts. Bet you never knew what obscene wealth can do when you split it up and share it out in smaller amounts. Book that ego trip on your rocket ship and you won't lack for company. You'll be a perfect match there in your cosmic patch Floating around with the other debris If they can send one billionaire up in space Why can't they send them all? If we think of a reason that we need you back here We'll be sure to give you a call Take your time, take your friends I hope you're having a ball Send one billionaire up in space. Why can't they send them all? Oh, help these poor billionaires, Mr. Jones. Just may be a miss society as you're sailing the celestial beyond. We're sure you'll find a role. Hey, be your own black hole. And how we gonna miss you if you don't stay gone? It's a little late for a re-entry date as you're orbiting from pole to pole. You should have thought ahead, cause you're now in code red Since you laid off everybody back in mission control If they can send one billionaire up in space Why can't they send them all? If we think of a reason 
that we need you back here, but we'll be sure to give you a call. Take your time, take your rest, hope you're having a ball. If they can send one billionaire up in space, why can't they send them all? If they can send one billionaire up in space, why can't they send them all? Good morning, KMUZ listeners. This is Bob Berto Rossi back with another KMUZ Labor Report. Back in the 1980s, I joined with many others in the nation's coal fields to support women who were getting jobs in the coal mines. Mine work had previously been an almost entirely male preserve, and believe me, those brave women who tried to enter the mining industry had a tough time of it. And not only that, but the world wasn't standing still while that was happening. They made history, and they set a new mark for women's empowerment. Now that history is getting recorded for others. So here with us today to recount the story is Kip Dawson. Sister Dawson is visiting uh, with us today from her home in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, headquarters of Steelers Nation. From 1979 to the end of 1992, she was an underground coal miner with an active, and an active member of the United Mine Workers of America, or the UMWA, our union, in a mine in western Pennsylvania. During those years, she and her coal mining sisters across the United States came together in the Coal Employment Project, or the Coal Mining Women's Support Team, which is where I met her um, more years ago than I want to remember. Uh, but today, many of us, uh, many of those women, rather, are, are working with people's historians to archive and collect stories of, of those years in the coal fields in the USA and the connections they built with coal miners and their wives and with other unionists and uh, workers' organizations in many places in the rest of the world, from Great Britain to South Africa. Good morning, Sister Dawson. How are you today? I'm doing very well. Thank you, Bob. How are you? I'm oh, doing okay. Thanks for being on. Uh, let's jump, jump right in here. My pleasure. Uh, can you say a few words more about yourself and, and tell us how you became a mine worker? Sure. Um, I'm originally actually from the West Coast traveled quite a bit since I left there. I'm 75 years old. I recently retired from 25 years of teaching in public schools here in Pittsburgh. Um, I got into teaching after I got laid off from my 13 years as an underground coal miner. Many of us left, lost our jobs around the same time in the transition in the economy in the United States. For me, it was the end of 1992 when I got laid off. And like many of my brothers and sisters, I was able to use a provision in the contract that our good, strong union back then, the United Mine Workers, had negotiated so that when a mine closed down for economic reasons, we were eligible for financial support to go back and get retrained in something. Um, a lot of the guys I worked with became nurses. Um, I became a school teacher. But it was after a really wonderful 13 years working as a coal miner in western Pennsylvania. Um, I had gone into coal to keep going a life my mom had passed on to me. My mother had been, during World War II, a Rosie the Riveter. And she, she was a high school dropout during the Great Depression, like many working class um, kids had been. And she became a factory worker during World War II and stayed in the factories the whole time I was growing up. And she was also an active unionist. Uh, she was a member of the Longshoremen's Union out in California. I actually grew up in my mother's union hall and on picket lines with her and um, grew up wanting to keep my mother's legacy and everything that I had learned from her uh, going. So when coal mines opened up to women, thanks to the um, work that was done by black steel workers, in fact, um, to, to lawsuits that demanded affirmative action for black workers and women in the steel mills, uh, because these, many of the coal companies, like the one I was hired by, Bethlehem, were uh, part of the steel industry, they were required to open their doors to people like me, to women um, who had been excluded from being hired 
And thanks to that good work by our brothers and sisters in steel, we started to get hired. The civil rights movement and everything that it empowered people to do, um, we knew, we women who um, got hired into the mines, we knew that our history came partly from that. And I was not one of the first women to be hired. Um, I got hired in 79, 1979. By the time I was hired, women had been already working in the mines for five years, and they are the ones who really opened the door to us. Um, most of the women who were working in the mine where I was hired who had made it through those five years or three or four were black women, and um, they helped the rest of us be able to do what we and they kept doing that is to to hold on to jobs there. That's an inspiring story right there. Um, now our listeners may not know what a coal miner does or did. Uh, can you describe that for our listeners, please? Sure, I'd be happy to. Now, of course, I've been out of the industry for a long time, so I don't know uh, much about how things have developed in since um, 1992 underground. Um, but coal mining itself is uh, a term that's used for extracting the fossils that have been turned into coal um, under heavy weight of land above it um, in one way or another, and that's been going on for a long time. But there's two basic kinds. Um, one is involves uh, extracting the coal by tearing away the cover that is on it that strip mining and mining that um, sometimes is known as mountaintop removal in places like um, West Virginia and Kentucky. Um, that, but the kind that mining, coal mining that I was involved in was more common then, and it's involved going into the earth to um, whatever way one can, using machinery, extract the coal from where it has been sitting patiently um, and quietly um, for, in the case of the mine I was in, for six million years, um, pulling it out however one can without killing too many people in the process. Well, what is it that made that work something that you and some other women wanted to do? Well, that's a really good question, and we're revisiting that now as we begin the work of pulling ourselves together to help restore our history or preserve our history. For me, it was an opportunity to continue the kind of life that my mother had helped me to understand or to help me to have as a child. That is, to work in a place where the pay was good and there was a union to um, provide safety and to provide the kind of... Um, collective voice that would allow us to get the things that we earned as workers. And we, we can see in today's world how tough it is when you don't have that kind of thing in any kind of job. So, and also I was intrigued by doing non-traditional work for women and keeping going the doors that had been opened for us by people who had preceded us in breaking down walls that had existed before. For most of the women that I worked with, coal mining was in where they lived, the only good paying job, which also was relatively safe because of the existence of the United Mine Workers Union. So many of the women I worked with were single parents. Um, many had had to leave abusive relationships or for whatever reason were raising their children by themselves and needed to have a job that they could come home to their family safely with, but also with a decent paycheck. So I hope that helps to answer. No, it does. That gives us a good picture. So mindful of that, what were the challenges that, that you and other women faced as you went into the mines? Well, the original women had the biggest challenges. They had to... They went into places where superstition said women could be women could be curse, cursing the workplace if they actually entered a place that had been traditionally just just worked in by men in some cases. 
um, but more common than that was the cultural and uh, cultural situation, which did not much appreciate strong women who were willing to take on things that were not just more traditionally assigned to women. So there was that. For some of us, like me, I'm a very small person, uh, was then too. We had additional challenges um, in just finding uh, protective equipment that you have to have underground that could fit us. The thing that most people think of when they think about women going into the mines is gruff and ugly men who would give women a bad time for being underground with them because they liked the uh, men's world. They didn't want women interfering with it. There were some men like that. In some of the mines, women did face actual physical uh, challenges that men bestowed on them and other things like that. Where I worked, I, it wasn't like that because of two things. One is the women who had been in the mines for five years before I got hired had proven themselves to be not only good workers and there to, to do the work, but also strong union people. And the old-timers in the mines and the black miners and others who took the union seriously, as soon as they got a sense from each of us that that's what we were all about, they became our best friends. And it was easy to, once, once we had established those things, it was easy to become an accepted part of the mine and accepted part of the union as well. You know, I remember a time when there were just two women down in Kentucky making work clothing and tool belts for women out of their garage. <laughs> uh, yes. And that was it. That was it. You had to know them to get the, that tool belt and, and some of that clothing before it became general and easy to get, or easier to get, I should say. I also remember. Absolutely. Yeah. I also remember a time that, that many people, including lots of women in the communities, were, were just scandalized when it came to women taking jobs in the mines. But I, I remember that there were supporters also, as you say. Women miners got organized, um, and pretty quickly, I think. Can you speak to how that organizing happened? Sure. This is a really a remarkable and unique a bit of history that we are working right now to try and preserve because two things happened simultaneously. One is that the doors were opened to women getting jobs by the lawsuit that I mentioned, and that, of course, was a product of both the civil rights movement and the women's movement, too, that opened those doors. And so women started to get hired. But simultaneously, a really forward-looking woman named Betty Jean Hall who was an attorney down in um, Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and other people who she recruited to the cause, decided that they were going to use whatever they had resources to support women getting into the coal mines. And so they organized something called the Coal Employment Project, which went to work on the legal end of things, looking for women who were having issues trying to get into the mines or maintaining their jobs, and looking for places where the doors still were shut to women, and they started filing lawsuits. So those things, two, those two things came together in a conference that I was so lucky to go to the same year that I got hired into the mines in Morgantown, West Virginia, where the women who had been working as attorneys and their supporters in the Coal Employment Project had found a lot of women miners and organized us to come together with them for a really historic conference um, that was held in the summer of 79 in Morgantown. And the Coal Employment Project added to its name Coal Mining Women's Support Team. So it's kind of a an awkward name, but it's who we are, and we we who have been involved in that, and including you, Bob, um, probably know the organization best by the initials at the beginning the CEP. Um, so every year after that, we had a conference in some coal mining area in the United States sponsored by the women who lived in that area and very soon also sponsored by the local of the United Mine Workers that organized the mines in that area. 
Yeah, you know, I put that bumper sticker on the back of my truck. Women miners can dig it, too, and rolled around taking people <laughs> off for a few years. <laughs> but but who were the women mine workers? I, I remember meeting white women from eastern Kentucky, uh, some African-American women from West Virginia and Alabama, and Navajo women mine workers, too. Uh, do you have a memory or a story uh, that you could share with us that tells us who these women were? Uh, oh, so many of those. And actually, I have just pulled out my journals, my thick journals from those years, mm which I wrote a lot back then, and I'm so glad that I did because um, the memories that are in the top of my mind are just the beginning, and we're trying to pull these together now, but oh my goodness, yes. I think every one of us who had any relationship with the Coal Employment Project would say that our horizons were broadened amazingly by the fact that we got to know so many different kinds of people, all of whom, or most of whom happened to be female, and all of whom worked in a coal mine. And as you know, Bob, anyone who's ever worked in a coal mine can recognize another coal miner pretty quickly once you start talking. We speak a common language, including the way we move our headlamps in order to indicate danger or ask people to come closer. We had that in common, and that helped us in the fact that we, we worked a dangerous job and came and needed our coworkers and they needed us to support one another, that helped us to communicate far more quickly than otherwise I think we might have with people with whom we had so little else in common. And one of the memories that always comes to me when I'm thinking about how much I learned and grew from the CEP is the conference that we had in the Four Corners area of New Mexico that was organized by our Navajo sisters and brothers. Um, one of the one of the CEP annual events. It was an amazing thing to be right there on the reservation, where Peabody Coal was the only place that you could get a decent job, decent in the sense that it paid, and decent in the sense that there was a strong union there. Navajos. Um, have lived extraordinarily difficult lives, as have most of our indigenous uh, people once they were moved into these reservations. And there, they considered themselves lucky to have this opportunity to make a living for their family. However, and, and so we got we gathered in the um, Cayenta area of Arizona, New Mexico, for this conference, as we got out of our vehicles that were covered with the dust from the roads that we had traveled to get into the conference, we were greeted by a feast that had been put together by, by our Navajo sisters and their families and our Navajo brothers to welcome us to an experience which they hoped would help us get a sense of what life was like for them. We all spoke the coal miners' language we learned so much that the other words that we um, could pick up in our conversations would carry us into a whole different kind of the discovery. For one thing, when our, our sisters and brothers felt comfortable enough after they had shared with us the blessings that their people did over food and to organize conferences and things, we began to learn that it was against their religion to invade Mother Earth and take things out of her, like coal. And that, however, was the only way that they could make a living to support their families that was would put food in the mouths of their children. So they lived a constant dilemma where they had come to grips with that, that um, tension by doing special blessings and special religious ceremonies to apologize to Mother Earth for invading her and taking the coal out. It was an incredible thing for us to hear the agony and the way that they had resolved this together, collectively, in order to be able to live where they had been forced to live by the United States government over the years of of, uh, that we know um, that our indigenous people have faced. So not only did we 
reestablish the bonds that we had with all of the women that you mentioned. Um, women, black women who were leaders of the Coal Employment Project from, yes, from um, Alabama and Kentucky and also Pennsylvania. And with the uh, hillbilly women, <laughs> so-called from um, Appalachia, the, and our cow, cowgirl women who came from the strip mines in Colorado and uh, Wyoming, we also learned something about the people who had been the first on this continent and how they were still struggling and yet what they were doing together in order to be able to stay alive and how important the United Mine Workers was to them as well. You know, there's a lot of wisdom in what you just said, um, and I hope people pay attention to that. I remember meeting British mine workers at a mining women's conference, uh, including Anne Scargill, the wife of Britain's National Union of Mine Workers president. And, and I remember her reminding us that our families had worked on the same coal seam in Spain, France, and England in northeastern Pennsylvania, and how that changed my understanding of solidarity and continuity. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And the reason that those British miners were there was really, again, because of the women miners. Mm -hmm. And it is a beautiful thing to think of. I, 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 I'm so glad you mentioned that. The coal seams that run under the ground in, on this planet don't stop at the oceans. And mm -hmm. just thinking when you're underground that there are people doing the same thing that you are in a similar place in another part of the world is a really powerful kind of concept to have. But we brought that above ground in 1984-85 when the AT Massey Company had forced the United Mine Workers into desperate strikes and struggles in order to be able to maintain any kind of union here in this country. The same thing was going on in England. Ronald Reagan was president of the United States. Margaret Thatcher was the prime minister in England. They were best buddies and both of them were out to destroy unions in their respective countries. So in the United States, the United Mine Workers was one that was put into very serious struggles for its life, and the same thing happened in Great Britain when in 1984-85, for over a year, coal miners struck in order to maintain the union um, that they had, a strong union. As you mentioned, Arthur Scargill was the president of it, and in both countries, women played a huge role in those struggles. In this country, it was both women in the mines and then miners' wives. As that struggle continued into 1989, the Pittston strike, miners' wives organized in this country, too, in, with women miners backing them to support the struggles. In England, the women against pit closures, the miners' wives, across England and South Wales were often called the backbone of the miners' strikes there. And we, we heard of each other. We learned of each other. We contacted each other. Women from the coal fields of the United States traveled to Great Britain to walk the picket lines with the miners there and with the miners' wives. And in turn, miners' wives from England, including Anne Scargill and Betty Cook, traveled to the United States more than once and brought coal miners with them to um, express their solidarity with our struggles, too. And we still have those bonds. We are still connected with one another. Now, my memory is that at one point in Appalachia, we had miners, telephone workers, teachers, some hospital workers and steel workers all out on strike at once. And it was just a tremendous yeah. sense of movement that I felt then. I think you've told us a little about how women and women mine workers fit into that. Is there anything else that you recollect from those times that you think that we need to hold on to right now? I think the most significant thing to me is that we have to recognize that we lost those strikes in 1984-85, that the unions in both countries were pushed way back, way back. And that even today, it's hard to recognize the coal fields of the United States because there's hardly any in which the United Mine Workers is a significant factor, a significant part of life. And the same is true in Britain. 
the National Union of Miners, one of the strongest unions in the world back then, also does not really exist now. However, what does exist is the fact that people were able and are able to come together to work together in a kind of a solidarity that keeps alive the idea that we do have rights and that human beings can support one another and will support one another and have supported one another when we begin to recognize that the things that divide us are so much less significant than the things that unite us. That's a big problem right now in the world that we are divided from one another so badly. And that here in this country, of course, we're in the middle of the ugliness of divisions and hatred that could tear us apart. And yet those of us who lived through the positive power that we were able to put together despite the kinds of pressures that exist today and did back then too, we have stories to tell to help reinforce the people who are going to be carrying us forward out of the mess that we're in right now. And that's what is driving the women miners who recently have come together and said, hey, we got stories to tell. And the young historians who are saying, hey, we need to hear about what real people really have done. It's, it's pulling us together and why we're so committed to try and to, to do the work that we need to do to keep these stories alive. We who worked in, women who worked in the mines back in the 80s were buoyed by the stories of what it took to organize our union in the first place. We're buoyed by the black, black people's struggles against the horrors of everything that um, black people have faced in this country and the tenacity of the people who were determined to get past those things. And we who had some positive experiences along the way back in the 80s, we need to be telling those stories too because truly I think most of us would say the same thing. We have to keep hope going, especially in times when there's the most despair, hmm. in times like these. And so we are determined to make that happen. Well, thank you for that, sister. The United Mine Workers of America, our union, um, I still pay associate dues, the UMWA, was always mm -hmm. several things at once. Um, the union took great leadership at times, and sometimes it didn't. Um, men union mine workers could be pathbreakers, and sometimes they got in the way, as you said. The union was changing in those days. I grew up around the UMWA, and I saw better and worse. So we're talking here about the union's role in everything. And I understand also that you're trying to put together a history of women mine workers. Um, if you can, could you say a few more words about the union and then tell us a little about the uh, the history project, please? Sure, I'd be happy to do that. You mentioned you grew up in an area where the United Mine Workers was strong. John L. Lewis's picture was up in my my mm -hmm. uh, our apartment in the projects when I was growing up because of the inspiration of the Mine Workers Union and their role in organizing the CIO, which was part of my my mother's the, my mother's mother's milk, I think. So we have that in common, Bob. Although I didn't grow up in the coal fields as you did. However, the United Mine Workers, in my opinion, you can find in the United Mine Workers examples of both the heights and the and the low points mm -hmm. in the history of the labor movement in this country. The United Mine Workers, to its credit, was one of the first unions to stand up against racism and to actually take an active role in combating racism when uh, the coal barons tried to use black people to break the union during the organizing in the big struggles of the 1920s and 30s. Uh, one of the things that the UMW did was when trainloads of black people were, were shipped to the coal fields of West Virginia and Pennsylvania uh, to try and um, who had been recruited from very desperate positions, situations in the South to come get good paying jobs in the North who were not told that in order to work those jobs 
they would be being used to break a union. There were mine workers who would meet those trains and organize the people getting off of them to support the struggle that was going on in the coal fields. And the United Mine Workers has had a position in, in, in its constitution from the 1890 when it was organized that members of the Ku Klux Klan were not welcome as members of the United Mine Workers Union. That was a one, it was ahead of itself, ahead of the rest of the labor movement in continuing to enforce that. And when I was in the UMW, my local union was among the unions that came together in Washington County, Pennsylvania, to um, oppose and to stand against a rally that the Ku Klux Klan was organizing there, continuing that tradition. So there's a lot to be proud of in the UMW, and of course the UMW stood firmly for the workers who were being abused by the Carnegies and the, um, the Steel Barons, the Fricks, and in organizing them. And some beautiful strikes, some wonderful history there. But on the other hand, um, what we saw happen in the A.T. Massey strike and the Pinston strike, et cetera, when a union does not recognize that it needs to stand for strongly for all of the people in the region in which it is organizing and to stand together firmly when um, uh, to represent what the members need and what the communities in which it exists need, uh, need, then it can fall into the wayside and not be able to continue. I, I think one of the tragedies of the United Mine Workers is that it has not taken a stand in, to protect the planet in which our people live. And um, it has become, it, it gave into jumping on the bandwagon that the coal industry was promoting that we have to continue to mine coal and it has to be our future. And of course, that's not the way life is unfolding now. Our planet cannot continue to exist unless we recognize that the that coal is and extracting coal and extracting other fossil fuels are endangering us. You have to have a vision bigger than what the union movement in this country has at the moment. I'm sad to say, if you're going to survive and actually be actually be able to lead things as the world changes, so there's a lot of strength in our history and some nearsightedness that has kept us from keeping moving forward, I think. That's my opinion. And thank you for that, Pete. I know you're trying to tell the, the story of women miners and you have a project moving that forward. Can you tell us a little about the project, too? Sure. Uh, there's more than one story of women miners. That's mm-hmm. the, the thing that we keep coming against. But, of course, together we have collective history. What I think of, of several of us have been collecting um, our history as we made it, and we are fortunate that there is a wonderful collection of archives of women miners and our times in the United Mine Workers at Eastern Tennessee State University. The library there looks like a tribute place to women miners when you walk into it, and the archives are good. There's a book that Merritt Moore wrote that was published in 96 called Women in the Mines, which has a lot of our stories in it. There are things in print. But I think it takes hindsight to be able to recognize how significant something is. And we who are old women now (laughs) who are still involved in our world are beginning to get an even bigger sense of how significant were the years that we were, t- were together in the mines and in the coal employment project. And we're also getting the sense that we're getting older, and several of us, quite a few of us actually have already left us, have died, that those of us who are still here feel an obligation to want to be able to pass on everything that we can. Um, and at the same time, there's a movement among historians to recognize the significance of writing history from below. 
that looking at the people who actually made history rather than just the people who whose big names are in our history books. And one historian here in, in the Pittsburgh area in particular uh, was somebody I turned to when I started to get worried that we didn't have much time to do the kind of storytelling and collecting that we really must do from the vast array of women that we, miners that we have. That you've mentioned some of the various places that women have mined and the various people who have come together in this. So I appealed to this historian and said, if you ever get a graduate student who wants to do a thesis for a doctoral, a doctoral thesis about the things that we can talk about from the 80s, please um, let me know. Well, he took it really seriously. He spread the word among his colleagues. And we are now in the midst of a, a little bombardment, which is actually really beautiful, of historians who heard that call and are turning to us and saying, we want to help. Some of them are doctoral students who are young women who are inspired by us as women. But some are people who have been around a little longer and who want to offer their services in. So we're now, I just finished entering names on a spreadsheet with email addresses and phone numbers for as many of our sisters as we still can find, and we'll continue to do that. And we're about to send um, communication to these women, some of whom we've already called, and everybody's excited about this. We're, we're about to get it really moving, and we have some wonderful friends who are looking to help us now, including you, Bob. I think <laughs> that's how you and I got reconnected, that's isn't right. it? That's right, sister. You know, I'm sorry to say that we got to start closing up the shop here. Uh, do you have any final words for us, anything you want to help us close out with? I just want to thank you so very much, my brother, for picking up on connections that we made years ago when we were doing the things that we're now talking about as history. Mm-hmm. There have always been men in the mines and around the mines who have recognized us as their sisters. And you have been among them for a very long time. You make me think of some of the guys that I worked with in the mines and how much we grew to really become family underground. And that's the kind of spirit, I think, that's going to change what's going on in this country into something positive. So I want to thank you so much. Thank you, sister. You know, we're not getting old. We're just getting started. So, um, well, thank you, Sister (laughs) Kip Dawson, Union Strong. Yes, sir. Thank you, Brother Bob. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this date in 1905, 23 industrial unionists held a secret meeting in Chicago. The meeting lasted the next three days as the unionists discussed their ideas for strengthening and broadening the power of working people. The meeting became known as the January Conference. Over the three-day conference, the unionists drafted a manifesto that outlined their ideas. They signed and sent out the document to unions across America, as well as industrial unions in Europe. The signers included such important labor figures figures as Big Bill Haywood, Eugene Debs, and Mother Jones. The document critiqued the narrowness of the trade union system, which predominantly represented only skilled workers in particular crafts. It called for a more inclusive industrial union congress to be held in Chicago that June. The document declared all power should rest in a collective membership. That June, the Continental Congress of the Working Class met and formed the International Workers of the World, more popularly known as the Wobblies. At its peak in 1923, the IWW consisted of approximately 40,000 members, yet the impact of the IWW reached far beyond its membership. The IWW pushed for a more inclusive union movement. It organized across ethnicity, race, and gender, challenging the status quo of the often exclusive labor unions. Eventually, the organization began to decline due to the repression of the U.S. government, which viewed the Wobblies as a dangerously radical group. Throughout its history, Chicago was an important site for the IWW, and the organization's headquarters remains in the city to this day. If you'd like more information about the IWW, visit its website at IWW.org. Labor History in Two, brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to LaborHistoryInTwo.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two. 
Let me tell you of a story of a nurse named Nancy and the way that she's been ignored. She grabbed her stethoscope and scrubs, kissed her husband and family, went to work on the med search floor. Did she ever return? No, she never returned. And her fate is still unlearned. She may work forever in the med search unit. She's a nurse who never returned. Nancy worked all night. That'll do it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. And even better, if you like what you hear, and we sure hope you do, please like it in your podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Today's music included We Were There, Billionaires in Space, and Nancy on the Med Surge Floor, all from the D.C. Labor Chorus 2021 Holiday Concert. We've got a link to the whole concert in the podcast show notes. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmenovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening, keep history, and see you next time. Does she read tax returns? Yes, she reads tax returns. Has she seen the profits they earn? Though her boss would never want to pay, she fought him. She's the nurse who reads tax returns. Now you Maryland nurses, don't you think it's a scandal that the bosses have to be so cheap? Voted Nurses United for a union that will fight it and let Nancy go home and sleep. Did she ever return? No, she never returned. And her fate is still unlearned. She may work forever in the mess unit. She's a nurse who never returned.